Well, hello and welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad that you've joined us today as we're starting a brand new series together. We just wrapped up a series called Relationship Spheres, where we looked at various types of relationships and how we can see Jesus and reflect Jesus in those. If you missed any of those weeks, I wanna invite you to go back on our website and check out those recordings. It is well worth your time. It was an incredible series. But today we're starting a brand new series called Hidden Treasures, the Parables of Jesus. One of the most common ways that Jesus taught those who were following him was through parables. These were just stories, uh, interesting, unique stories about uh, just common everyday items or situations that conveyed a deeper truth to those who were willing to listen. And for many, including his own disciples, these were confusing. It caused uh, those, those who were listening to lean in and, and ask, what, what, was, what was he talking about there? What was that about? And that was the point, to spark questions, to spark conversation. Remember, Jesus in his earthly ministry was regarded, recognized as a rabbi. And rabbinical teaching is both conversational and repetitive. So parables are intended to start a discussion, start a conversation, to leave you wanting more. The parables of Jesus uh, come at the same subject over and over again. They're repetitive in this way. What's the main point? The kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God like a hidden treasure in a field? Is the kingdom of God like a grain of mustard seed? Is, a, is the kingdom of God like a, a net thrown in to the sea? Yes, all of them. See, Jesus is coming at the same subject from different angles so that we can see new truths in them. And rarely does Jesus give much of an explanation or an interpretation. He gives the story and then lets the disciples sit and discuss it and wrestle with it. And what's beautiful about this is as you live and as you pursue this journey with Jesus, you'll discover new truths, new meaning in these stories along the way. See, when I think of the, the parable of the prodigal son, I look at this story so much differently as a father than I did as a teenager. I see myself in a different part of the story. I, I see new meaning in it now. You know, it's easy for us to, to find an explanation or an interpretation that works for us, maybe in a book, maybe in a sermon, and then we just stick with it, right? That, that's what that parable really means. But I wanna invite you in this series to hear these stories in a new, fresh way. How? I want you to try considering the story before you assign meaning. Consider the story before you assign meaning. This means that before you consider what different kinds of people are represented by soil in the parable of the sower, maybe you just picture a farmer scattering seed and seeing different results. This means that before you jump to picturing the lost sheep, right, in the parable of the lost sheep, as a Christian who's lost their way, you just wrap your mind around this idea of a, of a shepherd searching high and low for his sheep. These stories are, are multifaceted. They communicate different truths to different people at different times. And as we engage with them, if you allow yourself to view them in a fresh way, I think you'll find new meaning from the last time you took a look at them, however long ago that was. 
You know, if Jesus wanted to communicate just a single truth, he probably would have just said it. He did that a lot of times. But when he's telling a story, he's inviting us into a conversation, communicating in a way that causes us to turn to one another and say, what do you think of that? Well, you, you heard it that way? That's so different than how I heard it. Let's, let's talk about that, right? To start that conversation. And what a perfect way to approach Easter. As I said, these, these parables are all pointing to the kingdom of God. And, and in about a month, we're gonna be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. This was the moment where the kingdom of God became a reality, came to fruition. It's where the stories that Jesus had shared started to become clear. I can just imagine the followers of Jesus after interacting with the resurrected Jesus, after seeing the church start to grow, turning to each other and saying, oh, do you remember that story that Jesus told? This is what he was talking about. That, that makes sense now. So I wanna invite you to join us in this series as we take a look at these, at these stories and, and create space to wrestle with them, to, to lean in, to ask questions, and to discover more about the kingdom of God, what it is like as we prepare to celebrate Easter together. Well, today we will be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You'll find it in Luke chapter 18 if you wanna follow along in your Bible or on your device. This is a, a story that, that you may have heard in Sunday school if you grew up in, in church or around church. Maybe you remember it as a cartoon or a flannel graph. Uh, but I want, like I said, to invite you to view this in a new way. And maybe that means just closing your eyes and listening to me read it. Maybe it means actually looking at your text in front of you and reading it for yourself as well. But let's begin Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So we know the audience, right? Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you this, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the story begins with two people going to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the immediate temptation here is to set up one as the good guy and one as the bad guy, right? That's the storytelling that we're used to. Which one uh, do I want to be like? Which one should I be, right? And the hint here, the big hint, is that Jesus refers to the tax collector as the despised tax collector, Right? And that seems harsh, but tax collectors are often used in the New Testament as uh, just representative of the worst of sinners. Most tax collectors in Judea were Jews who had taken the side of their Roman oppressors and to make a profit, they had to charge more than the actual taxes that were due. And they had freedom to do this. They could charge whatever they wanted as long as Rome got their cut. 
none of us enjoy paying our taxes, but imagine this. Imagine if the person uh, that was collecting your taxes could take a personal cut of whatever they decided to charge. This is, this is kind of what we're getting out of the despised tax collector. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were, were well-respected by the people. The Pharisaic movement was a relatively new movement uh, in Judaism, and it sought to, to bring beliefs and practices, the true beliefs and practices of Judaism, to local communities rather than leaving everything to the temple. They would say your, your, your existence as a, as a Jew and as a, uh, as a people of God is not just at the temple, it's also in your communities. And here is how you live that out. They had strict beliefs about the right way to live, the right way to follow God and to live rightly. And unlike many Jews of the day, uh, they uh, were uh, kind of unique in that they believed in life after death. This was a, uh, an uncommon view at the time that the, they believed that if you lived rightly before God, that you could experience a resurrection and an eternal life. Unlike priests that worked at the temple, uh, Pharisees were common people with a common heritage. They weren't from a line of, of holy people, a line of priests. They were accessible for, for questions, for teaching. They were a part of the community. And they had a great following because most people believed that they walked the walk and talked the talk. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who, who lived in this period and was able to uh, witness the, the Pharisees firsthand, wrote this. Cities grave, gave great attestation to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. I want to emphasize the actions of their lives and their discourses also. This is the, what they do and what they say. So two men walk into the temple to pray and their prayers are very different. Sounds like a bad setup to a joke, but this is where we are, right? So the Pharisee is standing by himself and he prays, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people the cheaters, the sinners, the adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of all my income. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Probably not. Last, last week, uh, our guest, Matt Michelotis, shared about praying for enemies. And, and I have to think that this is the exact opposite of praying for our enemies saying, God, I'm thinking about all of the terrible people in the world. And, 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 and even the person right next to me, these, these terrible tax collectors, thank you that I'm not like them. Here's all the ways that I'm not like them, right? This is uh, an incredibly selfish, self-centered prayer. And we may look at this prayer and say, well, of course, that's a Pharisee. That's how a Pharisees pray. That's just how they were, right? But here's what I would present to you. This prayer is a caricature. It's a bit outlandish on purpose, right? Not only was this a really selfish and self-centered, self-righteous prayer, the good work that the Pharisee describes is well beyond what's expected in Jewish law. Fasting was a practice for, for special occasions, mourning, uh, repenting from sin, preparation for a holy day. It was never meant to be a weekly routine, let alone twice a week. This is just far beyond. 
And then uh, our, translations, our translation says that uh, the, the Pharisee prayed about giving a tenth of his income, but others state a tenth of everything or all I have. This is kind of the idea here. I give you a tenth of everything. But this wasn't regular tithing practice either. Uh, there were specific things to be uh, given as a tithe or an offering such as produce or livestock. This Pharisee is saying, forget all the specifics. I just give God a tenth of everything. It's, it's beyond what's expected. Uh, it's beyond what's, what's in the law. Um, the scholar Robert Doran wrote, in sum, the Pharisee's prayer is a caricature that might have brought a smile even to the faces of the real Pharisee bystanders. They might themselves have encountered such priggish behavior. Think of that classmate we all had in school who was sure to remind the teacher to give out homework before the end of the day while everyone else in the class was hoping that they would forget, was hoping that they would get a, a, a day free of homework. You know that person, right? You're probably picturing them in their mind. Well, this prayer that the Pharisee is praying is not entirely unrealistic, but it's also not representative of a normal Pharisaical prayer. The rest of the Pharisees would likely be like, oh yeah, that's just like Bill. Man, what's with that guy? Can you believe him? Right, somebody, uh, the Pharisees probably had somebody in mind, right? But it wasn't a representative of all of them. Now, a tax collector uh, took a bit of a different posture, right? Standing at a distance, not even daring to lift his eyes to heaven, beating his chest, saying, oh God, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Right? The simple prayer. But here's what I would pose to you. This is also a caricature. It may not be a prayer that we would expect a tax collector to pray, but look at this elaborative picture, elaborate picture that Jesus paints here. The descriptive language that he uses, standing at a distance, won't even lift his head, beating his chest. It's an extreme picture of repentance, right? Even in this simple prayer. And the listener would likely be, be thinking, man, could you imagine if a tax collector actually prayed like that? And could you imagine if a Pharisee actually prayed a prayer like that? That'd be crazy. We're left with two caricatures, two extremes, a righteous, well-liked leader in the community praying a prideful, selfish prayer and a despised, traitorous tax collector praying a simple, humble prayer. Which one returned home justified? The tax collector. And the audience may have been thinking, okay, well, the, the Pharisee prayed one selfish prayer, but there's still a Pharisee. Like, that's a good thing. And the, the tax collector, yeah, they prayed a, a good, one good prayer, right? but they're still a tax collector. Like, let's look for, and see if life actually changes for them, right? Because we have these assumptions in mind, right? These assumptions, these stereotypes about people in mind that keep us from seeing the meaning of this message. And Jesus shatters that by saying the tax collector was the one who went home justified. See, Jesus utilized two caricatures in order to break down the assumptions people had about both, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if we don't recognize this, we run the risk of living out this parable with other people groups around us. Because just like the, the people Jesus was talking to, we have a tendency to view people as monoliths. Let me tell you what I mean. We tend to, to take people 
in our lives, the people we see around us, and put them in categories, right? And then we view those categories as indivisible, entirely uniform, a monolith, right? Everyone in this category, everyone in this group is this way. Men are like this. Women are like that. Catholics believe this. Presbyterians all believe that, right? Liberals are always talking about this. Conservatives uh, can't stop talking about this. And of course, we know this isn't actually true. Just because someone is, is in a group of commonality doesn't mean that they're all clones, right? We know this, but yet our brains tend to drift towards a monolith mentality of everyone in this group is like this. I happen to be a millennial, and wow, is that a monolith. I mean, we hear it all the time that uh, millennials are lazy, they all want participation trophies. They're always on their phones. And you know who we hear that from? Other millennials, right? I have so many friends that will say, I'm technically a millennial, but I'm not like all the other ones, right? We, we have this, this view of ourselves. Pew Research Center did a study of millennials and they found this. 59% of 18 to 34-year-olds described their own generation as self-absorbed. 49% said their own generation were wasteful. 43% described their generation as greedy. And overall, they found out of all age groups, millennials hold the most negative views about their own generation. See, even from within our groups, our categories that we belong to, we accept these assumptions. We accept these stereotypes as valid, even when we ourselves are the reason, the proof that they're not true. And it may be that you've heard the same expectation, the same assumptions over and over again because of a group that you belong to. It may be that you've heard it so many times that you've started to believe it. And what I wanna to say to you is that you are not defined by a people group, you're not defined by an assumption, you're not defined by a stereotype that people put you in. You are a unique creation made in the image of God. And to further illustrate this, uh, let's check out this video. It's so easy to place people in boxes, drawing lines, creating sides, there's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around, and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters, and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do, and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, those we don't seem to share anything with. Welcome, and thank you for coming today, guys. Today, I'm gonna to be conducting an experiment uh, where I'll ask you a series of questions. Now, these questions will be very personal questions, and for us to get a true result, I need you to be completely honest with how you respond. The first question I have is, who in here was the class clown? Thank you. 
Who is never on time? us. We who have tattoos. We who feel lonely. We who have been bullied. others. We who are madly in love. We who have overcome great adversity. won the championship this year. a beautiful picture of how we are not the same, right? That we uh, can absolutely be divided into categories, but those categories don't define everything about us. That we can be in different age groups, from different backgrounds, from different faiths, from different occupations, and still share things in common. Hmm. It's pretty remarkable to get that as a visual picture. Let's, let's turn back to the parable though. How do we view how do we view biblical Pharisees and tax collectors today, right? It's probably a little bit different than what I described before. We largely continue to group them into stereotypes and monoliths as we tend to do, but very differently than, than Jesus's audience did. What we hear about Pharisees today, maybe what you learned in Sunday school is that they are legalistic, hypocritical, 
enemies of Jesus. I remember singing in Sunday school, I don't want to be a Pharisee. They're not fair, you see, right? We, we even turn these into little ditties, right? The word Pharisee has even taken on a new meaning. Webster's Dictionary now has a secondary definition of Pharisee. First, a member of a Jewish sect, we know that. But second, a hypocritical, censorious, or self-righteous person. Well, is that true? Were Pharisees always self-righteous, hypocritical, enemies of Jesus? Of course not. Of all of the Jewish leaders of the day, it was the Pharisees that seemed obsessed with Jesus's message. Probably because they also believed in life after death, a resurrection, and this is what Jesus was talking about. They continually engaged with him, even inviting him to dinner. And, and many Pharisees were hostile towards Jesus. But others, like Nicodemus, drew near and asked really curious questions. They were drawn by his message. Some Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. We know this. But others, like Nicodemus and like another Pharisee, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, took Jesus down from the cross and prepared his body for a proper burial. When the apostles were put on trial by, by Jewish leaders, it was the Pharisees that came to the defense, like Gamaliel. And in Acts 15, we, we actually find an entire group of believers belonging to the party of the Pharisees, bringing a major concern to the leaders of the church. So were the Pharisees enemies of Jesus? <laughs> it's complicated. Right, that's really all we can come to is it's, it's complicated. And this isn't an apologetic for Pharisees. Many of them were absolutely opposed to Jesus. What we see here though, is that it cannot be reduced to such simple terms. It's complicated. What about tax collectors? Well, we, we know that they were in general despised, but think of maybe what you learned in Sunday school or what you've heard um, in, in, in books or, or in other places. Tax collectors are a good underdog story, right? They're the sinners that Jesus loves. Think about it. Have you ever heard a story from the Bible where a tax collector didn't respond to Jesus's message? Probably not. Were they just sinners that always responded positively to Jesus's message and, and left their wicked ways behind? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Rome kept getting their money somehow, right? There were still tax collectors that kept doing what they were doing. And we see a handful of them responded to Jesus. We see that in the gospels. So again, it's complicated, right? And if we're not careful we can flip this parable with our own assumptions of these two people groups. And what we end up saying is, thank you, God, that I am not like this Pharisee who's so selfish and prideful. And if we get there, we've missed the meaning entirely. I wanna point out two takeaways from this parable today. Remember, there are more takeaways as you, as you look at the story, as you continue your journey with Jesus. But let's, let's look at two for today two things that keep us from closeness or rightness with God. First, viewing people and people groups as monoliths. Reducing our own view of people to the categories that we made for them. This may make it easier. It may help to simplify or organize the world around us, but it does nothing to help us love our neighbors. And it leads directly to the second thing that keeps us from closeness with God, and that is 
measuring rightness by comparison. Measuring righteousness, holiness, uh, closeness with God by comparison. We might say things like, thank you, God, that I'm not like, just as in the words of the Pharisee. If I can think of a person who's worse than me, I must not be that bad. And even more so, if I can think of a whole group of people, whoa, that are worse than me, I must be doing pretty good because I'm better than all of those people. It's everywhere, right? We look at uh, social media through TV, through talking with friends. We see this snapshot into other people's lives and, and, and maybe even without thinking, we figure out if we're doing better or worse than them. Have we gone on as many dates? Do we have as good of a house or job? Do I have as many friends? Maybe we don't phrase it, thank God that I'm not like blank. Often, maybe just to ourselves, it's at least I'm not blank. But what if God doesn't care about the things that you're not? What if God cares about who you are? Let's look at the prayer of the tax collector. Oh, merciful God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I fail God and other people on a daily basis. But who, who else am I? I'm someone who's welcome in God's presence. Regardless of, of if other people think that I should be welcome there, I am. Think of the tax collector walking into the temple. The boldness that just that took with that reputation. Who else am I? Someone who God has been merciful toward. God, have mercy on me. And if I embrace these things, then according to Jesus, I can go home justified before God. I am someone who can be justified before God. Regardless of what people group I belong to, regardless of the assumptions people have about me, regardless of any comparison I may have or others may have about me. And if you're like me, but you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, I wanna invite you to connect with a prayer partner whether that's in person or online, wherever you're at, there's a prayer partner available to you that would love to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus? I want you to know you are welcome in God's presence. And God's mercy and love and grace are already freely given to you. So how do we start to break down monoliths? How do we learn to see people instead of categories, to, to measure our, uh, ourselves by the love and the mercy of God rather than comparison with others? I think the key is in a small detail of this parable. Notice the one thing that the Pharisee and the tax collector have in common. The Pharisee stood by himself. Stood by himself and prayed. The tax collector stood at a distance and prayed. It's, see, it's when we, we stay distant from one another. It's 
when we keep our separate spaces from one another. This people group's here, we're over here. This is their team. This is my team. There are the others. This is where stereotypes and assumptions grow. But it's when we draw near to one another that assumptions and stereotypes are broken down. I've shared a piece of this story before, but my wife and I had the opportunity to uh, go on a mission trip with some students a while back to the far off distant land of downtown Portland. Right, we stayed there for about a week and, um, and, and for our students, it was a mission trip. We weren't calling home every day. We, we, we stayed uh, in the downtown area and just served primarily those who were living outside. And one thing that we did every day was we would pack our sack lunches for the day, but we would also pack a sack lunch for a friend. And the challenge for our, our lunchtime, we would meet at Pioneer Square, was to go find someone to give a lunch to that looked like they needed a lunch. And then to ask a second question. The first one, would you like a lunch today? The second one, can I eat with you? Can I have lunch with you? And sometimes it was a no, but a few, a few of the days, we would have a, a great lunch. I remember one, one day uh, we were under the Burnside Bridge and it was my wife and I and a couple of students and we found uh, three people probably in their 20s or so, around my age at the time. And they accepted our lunches and they invited us to sit with them and, and eat. And we got to spend about an hour just talking. And we asked about uh, just, just life and, and man, how, uh, how did you come to be in Portland? How long have you been living here? And when I asked that last question, uh, one of them actually spoke up and said, you know, I don't live here anymore. I got a job. I, I have my own apartment now, but I come here every day because this is where my community is. This is where I spend my free time. These are the people that love me. These are the people that care for me. And in that moment, it just shattered my assumptions of people that I see hanging out under the bridge, sitting around tents, standing on a street corner. Man, that's, that's some, that, that's exactly where they're at. They're living there. They're, they're struggling to get by. And other people are still struggling, right? They're, they're maybe make, making some progress. They may have found a place to live, a shelter, but they're still coming back because that's where community is. But I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't having lunch with them. If I wouldn't have offered them this little simple sack lunch, if I wouldn't have asked the question, See, I understand that this year, drawing near to one another is so difficult. Social distancing is still important. We're still trying to tackle this pandemic and get it behind us. But I want you to think about what does it look like even this year to, to make connections with people who are different than you? To purposefully break down these assumptions you may have of others. Maybe it's a phone call or a Zoom call. Maybe it's meeting for coffee or a meal in a safe environment. But you also may be sitting here saying, man, I don't even know people to make those connections with. I don't know how to make those connections. And if that's you, I want to just give a special invitation to experience Rooted this season. I know we talk about it a couple of times every year, and that's because what we've seen over and over again, season after season, is that Rooted groups provide a space where strangers can become friends where people who are different from one another in a variety of ways can choose to pursue Jesus together. To say, oh, you see Jesus that way? Let me hear more about that. 
It's these groups where that, where that is fostered, where that happens, and we learn to ask those good questions. So we begin the season next Sunday. I would love for you to join us. You can find out more, alcpnw.com slash rooted. But I wanna close with a couple of questions. Are you standing at a distance today? Are you standing at a distance? Are you recognizing that you are far off? Whether you're, you're distant from God or you're distant from others, I believe God is calling you to take a step forward, to take a step toward, right? To, to draw near either to God or to other people. And I want you to think about what will that step look like for you? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God who draws near to us. Lord, the, that when we choose to stand at a distance, you still pursue us. And Lord, would that in turn change how we view other people, how we approach other people? Lord, would we as your people, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, choose to reject monoliths? to recognize that that person is different from me. They're in a group that's not my group. But that doesn't mean I understand them and I can't understand them until I draw near. I ask questions, I have conversations, I have relationship. So Lord, would you be challenging us this week that when an assumption comes into our mind that we just let it float away, that we reject those notions that people are monoliths, but instead we recognize them as unique creations made in your image. And Lord, in doing so, would we recognize that our value, our holiness, our righteousness does not come from putting other people beneath us. Lord, it comes by drawing near to you, the one who gives abundant grace and gives it freely. Would we draw near to you and draw near to others. In Jesus' name, amen.